Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports, and we talk with the author about that book and about some of the deeper issues in the study of sports. This week's guest is historian Simon Martin. A native of London, Simon has been living for more than a decade in Italy, where he teaches at the American University of Rome. As you'll hear in the interview, Simon was first drawn to Italy to research the history of fascism. He discovered that there had not been an academic study of Italian football under the rule of Mussolini, a time when the Azzurri twice won the World Cup. His thesis on football under fascism became his first book, and earned the 2004 Lord Aberdare Prize, presented by the British Society of Sports History. His newest book looks at Italian sport in a broader scope, from the early 19th century through the fascist period and post-war economic boom, down to today, a time when sport, politics, and media have been mixed together to create what Simon calls Berlusconia, His book is titled Sport Italia, The Italian Love Affair with Sport. It was published in 2011 by I.B. Torres. And like Simon's first book, this one was also awarded the Aberdare Prize. According to the judges, Sport Italia is an essential political history of modern sport and the definitive work on the history of Italian sport in the English language. I will add that Simon writes in an accomplished and engaging style. And as you'll hear from the interview, he is also a man of wit. We start our conversation, as is the custom on the podcast, by hearing a bit about the author's background. And to start, I ask Simon what led him to the study of Italian history and a life in Rome. Um, it had it was a bit of a, a bit of a mazy dribble. So I'd, I'd kind of um, the academic career had taken me sort of through a, a master's in Slavonic East European um, history and politics. I was originally thinking of uh, looking at studying to, or going down that road of, of, of Romanian fascism, which was I was quite, kind of interested in, uh, in in the freaky side of fascism and blood drinking <laughs> and that sort of that sort of thing, which kind of was kind of appealing. But um, the League uh, of the Archangel Michael, you were exactly yeah, yeah. no, I mean Codreanu and, and those sort of things. But they really quite. I mean, I'd always been interested in fascism, and, and actually, I mean, it was quite a 
seriously was a fundamental sort of course in my undergraduate career at Queen Mary, um, Queen Mary College in London, and, and I took a course on fascism, and I didn't know, I had no idea that fascism um, went beyond um, Hitler, Mussolini, and, and Franco, and then there was all these sort of funky fascists out in Eastern Europe, in you know the, the Slovakian priests and uh, the Iron Guard and the, the Arrow Cross in Hungary, and these sort of it's like wow, this is kind of interesting. Um, so I, can't, I had that interest very much in fascism, but. Um, the other thing at Queen Mary, in fact, Queen Mary was completely fundamental in, in my life in that there was, when I went there, there was also just reefing through the library one day, I came across a, a PhD thesis of some years, This was, I mean, I was there in 92 to 95, and it was probably 10 years before that of a guy who wrote a thesis on football under Franco, and it was under the supervision of Paul Preston, mm-hmm. um, and he looked at Madrid as like the Francoist team, which has kind of since been very much sort of kind of refuted. But he also looked at Barcelona um, and Bilbao and sort of separatist teams. And this was like, for me, this was like kind of fascinating. You know, history, it was history, but he was doing football. So, wow, history can actually be, uh, history can actually be kind of interesting. Um, you, you can do, rather than foreign policy, you can do pretty, in, you can do interesting topics. So, um, that, had remained in my mind, but then I went off on this sort of circuitous route and took the, the MA in Slavonic studies and was looking at studying Romanian fascism, and um, and it didn't work out. And then that got me thinking about this thing about Spain had always stuck in my mind. I thought, well, I wonder what happened in Italy, and looked at Italy, and I couldn't find anything out. There was nothing. And there was only, all I could find was just standard sort of books on the World Cup. And looking at it, I was like, wow, Italy won the World Cup in 34. They won it again in 38. They hosted it in 34. Um, and I had a little look, a little bit further. And then there was a book by Simon Inglis who wrote um, Architectural Histories of British Football Stadiums. And he did one on European football stadiums. And I looked and in the Italian section, lo and behold, there are a lot of stadiums which were built by the regime. And... Then I was like, okay, I realised there's something going on here and I can't find out what it is. So that sounds like well, that's got all the makings of a, of a perfect PhD topic. Mm-hmm. And it took a few years to get to get funded to do it. I think um, across the academics in uh, um, in Britain were probably, especially you know, 20, nearly 20 years ago now, were a little bit suspicious of someone who wanted to look at football. Um, I think it still remains a little bit. I, I still get classified as a as a sports historian, which is not um, not that I'm offended by that, but I think it kind of um, doesn't quite represent what I do and what a lot of so-called sports historians do. You know, I mean, I look at, I consider myself an Italianist. I'm an Italian historian. I just happen to look at Italy through the medium of sport. Um, if I did it through opera, then I think I wouldn't be called an, an, an opera historian. I would be called an historian. So, um, uh, so I think there was an element of sort of, kind of i don't know it was kind of new i guess at the at the time i mean sports history you know it wasn't i was breaking the mold people have been doing it before but um it's obviously over the last, over recent years become a lot more in vogue and that's really what took me to that's what took me to italy i went to and i looked at a, it was principally the stadiums i was very interested in architectural the the nature of the stadiums why they were the two stadiums of florence and bologna so very very different um and that's had an impact upon me Right up until now, I'm currently teaching a course on Mussolini's Rome, looking at the looking at the architecture of Rome, and that comes really from that interest in in the different styles of those stadiums. Um, 
And so having spent a year in Florence, uh, six months in Bologna, um, I then had to go to the Central State Archive, which was in Rome. And um, I went there for two months and um, I was done. I was going for two months, coming home, finished, go back to London. And um, like a lot of people, I went there for two months and I'm still there 11 years later. So um, that, that's it. That's how I got to Rome, effectively. Let's let's talk about your book um, on uh, Italian sport. And one of the important themes of the book is the connection of, of sport to the Italian nation or the idea of the nation. And uh, this is something I remember being surprised at as, as a university student, this, this idea or the realization that Italy as a nation state remains, even, even today, remains a work in progress. So can you talk about how this theme relates to your to your research and your book? Yeah, um I mean I think it is a, a work in progress. Good I good I uh, it's a good definition in many ways. I th- although I think a work in progress suggests that one day it might be completed. <laughs> um which I'm not sure I don't think it ever will. But um yeah, I think quite simply, I mean the whole thing about the book in many ways. I mean I think people if you look through Italian history, um, and again, I, I teach this at, at the American University of Rome. I teach that I basically teach the book where I kind of teach the history of Italy through sport, and the big theme is identity building, nation building the nation. And we we spend a lot of time looking at the the the, unif- the unification, which is completely the sort of wrong word in many ways. It's it's a it's a takeover, it's a colonisation by Piedmont. So you have an enormously, a very very big, um, a big country, a, a long country, big sort of you know areas of. It's very difficult to connect the sort of various cities at the time of the of the the unification and such. So we have lots of very different cultures separated. Uh, cultures, identities, economies—it's um, not a natural. It's not a natural country, and it really needs something to bind it together. And they, various people, look for um, different ways of binding the country together. War seems to be a, um, a consistent theory, whereby um, Gramsci talks about the, the, the revolution, the, the missing revolution, and, and another, lots of other people talk about this opportunity to unite people through war. We need a bloodbath. We need to have um, thousands of Italians who are prepared to lay. Once we have that bloodbath, we can see that they're finally prepared to lay down their life for their country, at which point then we can go ahead and we can finish the unification. And this doesn't happen. And obviously, Italy's um, reputation in war, justifiably, is not very good. Every time they get involved in something, it turns out to be a disaster. So, war doesn't really work. Um, what other options are there? You could talk about music, but then music is kind of um, class divisive. Um, opera certainly has a, a lots of nationalistic. We look at Verdi and lots of huge amounts of nationalistic um, messages and elements coming through that. But then, if you can't read and if you don't understand opera, then you're excluded from that. Um, uh, what else? What else is there? We can't reunite around a language because we don't have an Italian national language. So I argue in the book in many ways that I think sport is possibly the only glue that can actually hold everybody together because it isn't um, class divisive in the sense that sport as a whole cultural phenomenon 
can in different forms appeal to different people. So it could be that you come out of the factory and go as a working class sort of manual labourer, come out of the factory and go to the football match, or it could be that you're a member of the you know the aristocracy and you fence. But either way, although they're very different sports and they are class based, you're still interested in sport. So I think it was potentially the only way that you one of the only ways you could appeal to all Italians on the basis of being Italian. <coughs> now on the other side of that it's also very, very divisive because it is divisive in terms of Italian regionalism, um, identity, class. Um, it proves difficult to unite people around some champions because they can be divisive as well. We have rivalries, um, local identities, local heroes. But generally, I think in terms of a, as a, a big concept, it's one of the, I can't think of something else realistically that, that, that could in theory appeal to all members of Italian society. Mm. But it takes the Italians quite a long while to, um, to, to realize this. Well, and I was going to ask that, uh, was this something that, uh, that the monarchy in the 19th century, did they realize the, the usefulness of sport in their uh, unification in, in quotes, their, their unification project? Um, the, well, sport, um, sports, Italian sports origins really are thanks to the monarchy. Through, I mean, pre um, pre unification, sort of eighteen fifties, um, the king invites a guy called um, Rudolf Alberman, who who has trained. He's Austrian, but he's trained in um, Germany, and he's got a lot of experience of the Turnen German movement and the way that the Turnen gymnastic movement was used for nationalistic means in Germany against the um against the um the Napoleonic Empire. Um so he kind of sees what's happened in Germany and they and he invites Obermann to come over and train the Savoy military. And that's really where sort of modern um sport enters Italy. Out of this we see the first real sporting club of Italy which is the Turin Turin Gymnastic Society um, and that's about the sort of that's from sort of 1840s 50s onwards it's through and then the gymnastic society effectively it starts to spin off and form smaller clubs which develop throughout the north of Italy um, now that's about pre it's effectively it's pre-military training um, I'm not sure that the king um, necessarily sees this as a nationalistic tool in the sense of creating identity, but he certainly sees it as a tool to create a fitter, stronger military that will um, be able to defend his country, which at the time is Piedmont, which then in 1861 obviously becomes Italy. Um, but I'm not sure he really realises that. The, some of the, I think the first real example of, of someone who, people who pick it up is the Italian, is the, uh, the touring club. And um, the touring clubs sort of formed. Um, it's a real national. It really is a nationalist tool. It's an aristocratic. Um, it's always led by sort of formed by aristocrats and sort of members of the uh, the, the upper classes and from based in Milan. Um, and the touring club is that their their motto is far conoscere l'Italia agli italiani, which introduced the Italians to Italy. So it's about letting them. You form this new country and showing to them, showing to particularly northern Italians what their country's about, what's there, what the people are like, and to show them that also that the South, um, it's not Africa and it's not scary um, and the people don't bite down there. 
Um, and so they form, um, they start producing maps, guidebooks, um, and generally encouraging tourism amongst the sort of wealthier classes in the north. And one of the early uh, presidents of the of the touring club, um, Luigi Bartarelli, does he makes a really um, is an an account which has been it's been reprinted, um, and he goes in the, in the mid eighteen nineties. So roads are non existent, and he takes a quite an incredible um, bicycle sort of tour from right down in the south, the southern tip of Italy near um, La Mezia, um, up to Eboli. In which is sort of on the way towards Salerno, um, you know that would be quite a distance on a bike nowadays um, with non-existent roads, which would effectively just tracks um, the potential for bandits, the potential for dogs, um, the heat, everything. That was a pretty tough journey. And what he does is he writes a diary and they publish it in in the uh, newspaper, the Bicicletta, up in the north of Italy. And it's about saying to people, and he literally writes, he does say in this in one stage of his journal, look, the people down here, they are a bit smelly. They stink a bit. Um, they are different. They're dark. But you know what? They're all right. They're, they're, they're like, they're us. They're not subhuman. So come and explore your country. And in their sort of guidebooks and his writings, and what do they talk about? He literally introduced people to what there is in Italy. They talk about, you know, the various, the major landmarks, the fact that, you know, up in the north of Vercelli, you've got rice fields, you get down to the south, we've got oranges, we've got lemons. People don't know about this. So they, it's really about encouraging tourism, but also about encouraging um, an association with their country amongst Italians. So I think that's the first real sort of overtly... Um, nationalistic kind of sporting movement. So picking up on this division between uh, the North and the South in Italy, um, was there a, or what was the difference in the sporting cultures in, in the North? So talking about the gymnastics movement and the, and the cycling movement, which really began out of the, uh, out of the North. Uh, was there a, a sporting culture that, that emerged from the South? Um, no, I mean the difference being there is very little. I mean okay. Italy tends Italy tends to um, develop in the north and spread south, so it diffuses. Um, the real sort, the two the two sporting cultures effectively which um, operate in Italy are one nationalistic movement. So you like things like the touring club, but then you also see um, an enormous amount of um, sports clubs with nationalistic names. So clubs called uh, Garibaldi, uh, Liberty. Um, names after the king, but it's a overt, overtly nationalistic uh, clubs, which are about creating um, citizen soldiers, which are create about creating um, real a real sense of Italian identity amongst its members. Now, the other aspect, the other branch from which uh, modern Italian sport develops is through through the oratories, through the church youth clubs. So the church is massively. Um, important in the development of um, uh, Italian sport. And that's obviously very much, well, it's not nationalistic at all because obviously the church identity is, is it goes beyond um, uh, national boundaries. So what, what you see is that the youth clubs, um, the church is very smart. I mean, the church always has a, has a consistent fear of sport, but they're smart enough to realise that, okay, but we have to get over this because it's a really useful tool. So youth clubs begin having quite boring 
gymnastic sort of classes for children. Um, and then when they get a bit, they find that a little bit dull, they start being involved in wanting to play team games. And the church is quite worried about team games. They're particularly worried about football, soccer, um, because it's an English and Anglo-Saxon uh, invention. And by definition, it's Protestant. So they're worried about spreading this. But they also realize that kids want to play football. It's, you know, the new the, the football fever, this new phenomenon of the sort of late 19th century. Um, so they embrace it. And they take and they take it on as a way of kind of reaping souls, bringing people into the church. So we get them in; they can play football. And then once we got them here, then we'll do some Bible class afterwards. We'll do some religious education. Um, and I think particularly, in, in, you would see much more of that um, sort of church influence in the South, where the church was traditionally much stronger. But the, the development of sport, particularly in the South, is very much it's a it's a diffusion mm-hmm. from the from the North, effectively. And obviously through into, through the big the major in well the big cities I was going to say industrial cities but the big cities of the south which are not that industrial but nonetheless big metropolises like Na- Naples, Rome, uh, Bari. So you mentioned uh, uh, the Catholic Church adopting adopting sport as uh, a means of uh, expanding influence its influence and uh, another organization that that you talk about that uh, sees in the 19th century the usefulness of sports uh, are the socialists. So can you talk about how they uh, recognize the value of sports? Uh, Yeah, I mean, again, they're kind of, uh, it's very similar to the church, but um, I mean, the the socialists and the church are the two real main, um, they fuel the fire of sport in Italy throughout the the 20th and by the 19th century as well. Um, and their attitude is very similar to the church in that they're also terrified of it. They're terrified of this modern phenomenon for the same reason that the church was scared of sport. Um, apart from its worries about sort of Protestant sports, the church is really is really worried because um, it will distract people from piety. So, you know, we don't want people playing football because we'd much rather they come to church and pray. Now, the church realizes that this is if we go if we carry on with this sort of um, blinkered approach, then we are just going to lose people. So the church adapts to it quite quickly. Socialism um, is terrified by it, and they don't know what to do about it. So um, they're worried about, for the same reasons, not a distraction from piety, but a distraction from the class struggle. Um, while pe- if people are busy playing football, then um, they're not thinking about the class struggle. They're not thinking about their terrible um, social conditions. They're not thinking about how their class is being repressed by the, 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 the capitalist class. Um, and whilst we don't, I mean, that's you know, basic sort of Marxist interpretations of sport. And and um, I think in many ways, in the, in the Italian case, it's, well, in many cases, it's, it's a very valid argument. You see a number of um, industrial benefactors who form sports clubs across the world. And it seems to me that there's, there's a certain strength to that argument. However, the thing that the, the socialists are far, is that they're far more blinkered than the church in their approach. Um, and they have these huge um, polemics within the Italian Socialist Party, particularly around just the pre-First World War period. Um, and there's this huge divide amongst the Socialist Party, amongst those people who are completely in favour of sport, those complete people who are completely opposed to sport on ideological grounds, and those people who are kind of worried about it but think, well, but I can see there's a positive here. And, a, and as a result of these arguments, um, they never get to the bottom of it. They never really come up with a solution. They're terrified by 
the sales that the Gazzetta dello Sport has. Um, it sells far more than any socialist newspaper. For every one socialist newspaper, you might see 50 Gazzetta dello Sports fly off the, off the newsstands in you know, the early 1900s. And um, they are very worried about it. But what I, what I think is interesting, what I've argued in the book, is that actually out of it's out of these arguments that the church and the socialist party make and their whole their polemics and their discussions about the merits and the, the negatives and they effectively write a blueprint for fascism. I don't think fascism is particular. I mean, it's very smart because they come along and just take these arguments and just put them into place. So all the negatives and all the ways in which the, the, the church said, well, this is a real worry because uh, we're going to lose piety. What they're saying is sport mobilizes uh, socialists, are saying the same thing. Uh, sport can mobilise people more than politics can, more than religion can. So what the regime thinks is, well, OK, we'll take, we'll, we'll get out of sport. So they, I think they look at their arguments and just see this is the obvious mass cultural phenomenon, which if we can get hold of it and direct it, then we've, we've got a winner. Um, so they're very different. They're, they're, their approach is very different to socialists and the church, but I think for the, the, their, their fears are exactly the same. But they're, they're, the church is far more practical and prepared to embrace it because it sees the potential what it can actually achieve. Whereas the socialists are still, um, Carlo Levi, who wrote, um, the, the author wrote, uh, Christ stopped to air bully. And he writes an article in, I think it's the late thirties. Um, he's been in prison. I believe at this point, he's writing under a pseudonym in the midst of the regime. And he's still writing an article about, um, idiotic working classes are obsessed by people running around on a bouncing ball. So in the midst of the height of consensus for the regime, the socialists are still having this argument about the merits of sport. Now, you know, excuse me, but it's a little bit late to be having this discussion now because there's more pressing issues like your, the complete destruction of your civil liberties. But they're still going on about it. And I was going to ask about that. I was going to turn to the uh, to the fascist period. And, and you know, when we look at, at sport in Europe in the 1930s, uh, we see all these examples of, of the meshing of politics and sport, whether in uh, Nazi Germany or in the Soviet Union. And uh, it's really, though, uh, in Italy with Mussolini's regime that you see for the first time a, a government making sport part of its uh, part of its program, part of its political program, correct? And so uh, I was going to ask about that. You might want to talk a bit more about uh, why was it that, that Mussolini came, up, came upon this idea of using, using sport for political purposes? Uh, yeah, I mean, he's the, he's the innovator. I mean, everybody kind of knows that if you people who don't study sport history, everybody kind of knows about the Nazi Olympics, mm -hmm. and we got an idea about the the Soviet Union used the, uh, you know in the post Second World World, World War period. Mussolini is the, the 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 instigator of it; is the first one, and um, I think it's partly because, um, as I say, the blueprint's been written by the socialists and the Catholics. They literally write them a plan, and um, it's painfully obvious what what the socialists and the, what the socialists and the Catholics do. Um, is they generate enormous interest in sports. So they run clubs, they have associations, uh, they publicise it, they have tournaments, competitions, but in the midst of it, they're still not sure. So they, they create a massive interest in it, um, building upon, developing upon its natural development in this period anyway. And then having done that, they actually nonetheless fail to completely seize control of this phenomenon. So you've created a monster, effectively. Now, if someone can come along and actually direct that, then they've got something very powerful. 
Now, Mussolini has lots of influences of, of people like Gustave Le Bon, crowd, the French um, crowd theorist, and he's quite, you know, he's been thinking about this anyway in terms of his general politics. But if you look at big sporting events, what have you got? You've got big crowds. So um, the regime has enormous, a huge number of reasons for taking um, control of sport. I think the masses is one for sure. I mean, it, the fact that it has mass appeal. Um, it connects with its um, cross. Um, it's not class exclusive. It's, it, it appeals to everybody. Some form of sport can appeal to everybody. Um, everybody will have some. It will touch upon people's lives in some way, even if they hate sport. They'll still probably defend. They'll probably defend and explain why they hate it so much. So even if they don't like it, you can. Um, there's an angle. It reinforces the regime, uses it to reinforce gender roles. It's about um, the regime's demographic campaign. So it's about increasing the fitness of um, Italians, Italians who are going to go and fight in colonial wars, Italians who are going to fight, who are going to uh, fight metaphorically in the factories, women who are going to fight the battles, the battle for births. So the fitter and stronger we get women, the more babies they'll have and the fitter babies they'll have. So there's a fascist angle on... Uh, Every sport and every sport can contribute to almost all policies of the regime. And ultimately, I think it's a really fundamental part of the of the regime's whole um, drive to mass mobilise. But the, it, Mussolini's big problem is that he can't obviously appeal to the to the to mass society, the working class, this sort of emergent um, dominant force in in italian politics of the working class it can't appeal to the working class on a, on a class basis because it has come to power through the destruction of socialist trade unions um and through repression of the working class so it can't appeal to the working class on a work on a, on a class basis but it needs uh the consent of the working class or at least it's sort of benevolent neutrality so we have to mo so they have to be mobilized and um, what better way of mobilising people than sport? Because you can do so not on a class basis. So you can mobilise them either on uh, through their profession, you could mobilise them through their age. So you could have uh, youth groups, uh, the Opera Nazionale Balila. You could do uh, adult groups, the Opera Nazionale Dopo Lavoro, the after work movement for adult people. Uh, you could do it on the basis of um, local or national identities. So it appeals to all different sectors of Italian society. It gives you an option to get into the lives of all, all sectors of Italian society, but not on a class basis. And I think that's, you know, and that's part of a, a wider um, cultural um, exploitation by the regime. It's not only sport. I think sport is, is enormously important, but it goes through to art, through to music, to architecture. Um, the regime uses culture to, to try to mobilise uh, society and get get society behind it. So let me follow up on that. Uh, you had said the socialists and the Catholics, uh, while they both wanted, they saw the value of using sport. They were also wary of, of sport going beyond their control. Uh, and so thinking of of the fascists as the first totalitarian regime, and you know the fascists invented the term totalitarian as as their aim. Uh, mm. How successful was Mussolini's regime in in controlling sport, or do you see instances where where sport uh, kind of slipped beyond their control? 
I mean, I think there's a, there's a big debate about how totalitarian the regime was yeah, in yeah, general, yeah. anyhow. Yeah. Um, but in terms of sport, I mean, I think it, I mean, it depends how you want to evaluate it. I think it, I mean, it, it has almost total, I think it's possibly one area, one of the few areas of Italian life where it does have totalitarian control, above all, because the church isn't really that interested in it anyway. So there is nothing to rival its control over sport. It crushes. Um, any oppositional sort of youth and sporting clubs, and it eventually even gets around to sort of doing that to the to the church, or it takes over church sort of youth groups. So it does have um, almost complete totality. There is no opposition to cap to fascist sporting societies. If you want to have anything to do with sport, be it as a spectator, as a participant, as a as a kid, you've got to go through the party. Um, so I think it's very successful in its total rule and control of sport. That said, does it reap the rewards of mobilising society? I would say probably not, because when the time comes, you don't see a nation which has been mobilised and stands up and wants to defend the fascist regime. So whilst it has totalitarian control or total control over sport, I'm not sure that has the impact. And ultimately, there's always, there's still always the, the the opportunity that these big events can offer for opposition as well. So we do, you do see the odd moment of potentially oppositional activity. But it, the the whole issue, I think, the whole issue, the whole, the big point around sport is is this whole issue of what what does it mean to consent? How do we judge consent? How do we evaluate it? Because somebody goes to the football match because they support the Italian national team that wins the World Cup in 34 and 38, does that mean they're a fascist? Or does that mean they just support their country? I don't think the regime in many ways actually cares too much. But um, in terms of determining whether the impact upon society, I think, is it's, it's very difficult to call, other than when, when the moment comes and the Second World War comes along and the, and the regime collapses, you don't see an enormous amount of people who actually want to stand up and defend it. There are many, of course, and, and, they, and they're still there, and unfortunately they're still they're growing. So the, the, sort of, the, the neo-fascist presence is um, increasing considerably in Italy at the moment, and that has a you don't have to look too far in Italy to find somebody who is um, who will defend the regime, who will, def- who will look at uh, what they consider to be many positive aspects of the regime. The recent elections are indicative of that. A, li- a minimum of at least half a dozen neo-fascist parties on on the list. So um, I, I, I think it is di- it's difficult to say that that sport or the extent to which sport does mobilise people. It certainly has a major impact because it's in every it's everywhere. Simon, one of my uh, favorite parts of the book was uh, uh, your discussion of the development of Ferrari and, and mm-hmm. Vespa. And right. uh, uh, can you talk about those? So you talk about uh, not only sporting culture, but motor culture as, as part of sporting culture. So can you talk about the development of those two vehicles and how they fit into the uh, the post-war economic development? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're real. Um, I mean, they are real. The, I mean, they're the, the real symbols of, of of Italy. I mean, I mean, when I sort of teach this sport and Italian history course, my students, one of the first things I ask them, you know, what do you associate with Italy? And beyond pizza and ice cream, um, it's Ferrari um, and maybe football and, and sort of Vespa. These are sort of iconic images of Italy and they emerge. Um, they are products of the of the economic boom, of the miracle of 1958 um, to, to 63, which effectively is 
thanks to um, Marshall Plan money. So it's a it's sort of a, an anti-communist funded boom. It's pro- promoting the sort of merits of capitalism in Italy. Italy's a very key um, Cold War country because of its border with, with Yugoslavia. So um, the West is ter- horrified of the prospect of a of an, of an Italian state which might even democratically vote to become communist. And the Communist Party does become the largest communist party in Western Europe. Um, so there's good reason for um, sort of Western capitalist society to have concerns about that. So the boom partly comes from this huge amount of money. It also comes because of the incredibly large reservoir of uh, labour resources which are down in the south of Italy. So huge amounts of people who are unemployed and very poor. And they move and they offer the cheap labour that the boom thrives on in the northern cities of Milan, Turin and Genoa, and particularly factories like Fiat, for example, and like the, the Piaggio factory, which makes the Vespa. Um, and what you see is that the Vespa is really, it's kind of, you know, it's a indicative of um, a society which is modernising, but in a society which, a working class, which finally begins to have some disposable income. And so we see the boom in Italy is really built on electro-domestics, so washing machines, refrigerators. People are able to, there a huge amount of them are exported, but people are able to buy these televisions. They've got money to spend. And the other area that they now uh, are spending on is, is transport. But what we need for the economic boom is we need a means of transport which is um, suitable, appropriate for the time. So it's got to be cheap. Um, it's got to be able to get you around. Uh, but it's got to be cheap to buy, cheap to run, cheap to insure. And um, that's effectively what the Vespa does. And it's it has um, the impact that the bicycle had, an absolute revolution in the sort of mid-late 19th century in Italy. It's the same impact as that, but it's on two wheels and it's motorised. And so it enables people to get to work, to travel longer distances to the work, to work. It also gives them the opportunity to uh, to get away, to get out into the countryside. You can put your girlfriend on the back now and get her out into the out into the countryside where your um, deeply conservative Catholic parents can't see you. Um, it encourages the stimulation of um, the tourist a tourist boom in this period. People can finally get out to the sea. They can get to the mountains. Now the Vespers, um, and it, you know, obviously one of the the great success stories of of um, Italian manufacturing. But what it can't do is, uh, one of the few things it can't do is it can't keep you dry when it's raining. You can get an entire family on a Vespa. If you go down to Naples and Palermo, you can still see that. You know, wife, husband, two kids, the cat and the dog, plus the shopping. You can do that, but it doesn't keep you dry. So we need in this period um, uh, something similar, um, affordable, Cheap to run, doesn't cost a lot in petrol, doesn't cost a lot in insurance, good in the cities. And that's the Fiat 500, the classic um, car of the, of, the boom, of the boom, the little, the little Fiat that everybody comes to associate with Italy. And again, this is what happens is we see that this creates a, it's, it's, a, it's also a smart move by the, by the um, automobile industry because they create a new sector of consumer. These people who previously couldn't afford a car. It was a middle-class luxury. So let's make a car that the working classes or the sort of slightly better off working classes can afford. They will then buy that. So we create our own market. Now, if you do that, then obviously what this does is whereas the car or the bicycle, we go right back again to the bicycle, uh, the bicycle, the Vespa, the Fiat 500. These are all means of also distinguishing yourself socially. So 
you can start make yourself stand out as somebody who is uh, who has done well for themselves has um, disposable income, you can afford a car. So it's a status symbol. Now, if everybody can now afford a car, then suddenly that status symbol is, is no longer a status symbol. So what do we do? What, are the sort of, what does the higher end of the market do? Well, what we start to do is produce um, expensive cars. You can still show your wealth, but you can differentiate yourself uh, not because you've got a car, but because of the type of car. So we then start seeing Alfa Romeo and Fiat concentrate on the popular market, and Alfa and Ferrari begin producing um, high-end, top-of-the-range, uh, luxury, very, very expensive cars. And as a result of that, what they do is that they enter the they enter Grand Prix racing, and that's effectively what Grand Prix racing is all about. I mean, it's a it's not um, what it is today in this huge sort of money-making um, jamboree and what some people like to refer to as a sport, um, it, it's a means of selling your car. And that's, if you go back to the, the fascist period, the Mila Miglia, the 1,000-mile um, touring race from Brescia down to Rome and back, it's about showing car reliability. It's about marketing your product, and that's what Grand Prix racing is about. And Ferrari creates a Grand Prix team as a means of, um, getting it publicizing its car across the world, so really, from the boot out of the boom, we see people having money to spend um, across all classes, and cars are ways of people distinguishing their social class and showing their difference. Simon, we do need to talk about Italian football, and well, uh, uh, the one thing I want to ask about is uh, I want to jump ahead to the 1990 World Cup and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and something you you discuss is that the the 1990 World Cup hosted by Italy uh, was not a moment of of triumph for Italy, mm-hmm. but as a case study in Italian mismanagement and corruption. So could you talk about that? Yeah, I mean it's what what we see is I mean it's not a triumph in the sense that they um, they really should win it and they don't and they blow it. Um, so in that sense, it doesn't become a triumph. Um, as I argue, it's kind of it's very indicative of the sort of political. It's the first signs of the political corruption storm that's going to be coming um, of Tangentopoli into which breaks really ninety two onwards. And what we what we see is that Italia ninety is um, it's a lesson in in, in corruption. We see uh, projects, state money provided for projects associated with the World Cup in towns what have nothing to do with the World Cup, which are not hosting. We see um, developments in sort of just, just payments between direct payments from the state into private um, companies with no sort of intermediary. There's no sort of um, controls over, over the budget in many ways. So there's an enormous amount of people which profit from that. We see... Um, a lack of sort of health and safety regulations amongst these companies, and a lot of a lot of workers get killed. Twenty or thirty more workers and get killed in the process of building the various stadiums. Huge amounts of injuries, but ultimately there's an enormous amount of money being made by people who have got nothing to do with the um, with the World Cup, and it's very much indicative of the way that Italy has worked up until this point, and it's a kind of indicative of the way. That bribery and corruption have become totally have sort of taken over Italian life by this point, and it's indicative of the political storm um, that's going to come two years later. 
the the year the Italians do win the World Cup, mm. two thousand six. Uh, so I'm presuming you were there uh, for the for the yeah. celebrations. I was in Rome on my on my scooter yeah. along with about two million other people watching so, bins being burnt and um, buses being hijacked, basically. And uh, it was pretty. Uh, it was it was it was pretty. Uh, it was pretty extreme, I've got to say. I mean, I'm, I'm English, and we, I don't know what we would do here. God forbid England never won the World Cup. <laughs> I think we'd probably go and recolonise a country to celebrate. But um, there, it was just complete chaos. I mean, the rules of the road are bad enough on a good day, but um, it was total chaos. Well, I want to ask you about, because you describe, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the destruction of the celebrations aside. Uh, you say that, and I can't remember the term you, you use, but... But there, there was something sordid about the whole atmosphere surrounding mm. Italy's win in the in the World Cup in 2006, and it was part of it was uh, all of the other events in Italian football in 2006. So, uh, so could you talk about that and, and that year in Italian football? Yeah, I mean the, the, the World the, the World Cup win in 2006 um, is comes on the back of. Um, the breaking of a story in about April of that year, so very, very um, close to the tournament, of arguably the biggest corruption scandal. Um, and I say arguably because there have been many, and there's there's a huge one since then um, in Italian in Italian football. Um, Italian football is revealed to have been completely corrupt, and. Um, as many people had argued for many, many years. And um, I won't make many friends here in this statement, but it is it has been corrupted by Juventus, effectively. And um, that will upset a lot of people. But um, to be fair, it's not only Juventus which are, are found to be involved in this. Lazio are, are, have an involvement. Fiorentina have an involvement um, as well. And Milan are also, AC Milan are also... Uh, up to no good as well. So it's not only Juventus, but it does, um, as the investigation reveals, and many people still like to dispute this, um, or many Juventus fans like to dispute it, but it reveals a system being organised by Luciano Moggi, who's the managing director of Juventus. And um, this is this whole scandal, which breaks in April of 2006, just before the World Cup. Um, and it does tarnish the victory very much so. Um, the rest of the world is quite critical, is very critical of Italy. It sees Italy as just a nation of cheats. Um, I experienced it. It was quite interesting as a as a Brit in, in, in Italy. I was supporting Italy um, completely and speaking with people back home, I think it was by the quarterfinal stage, people were saying, well, back in England, everybody I spoke to was like, anybody, anybody but Italy. Like, as long as Italy doesn't win it, anybody. And that included Argentina, Germany and France, the teams and the countries that a Brit people like, we really hate. You know, there's nothing worse than, than, than an Argentine because they want our islands back. Um, and, but nonetheless, everybody supported those in front of the Italians because the Italians have this now reputation of being so, so corrupt and so dirty, and, and which partly is unfair, but also partly is, is obviously quite justified. Um, and... That resounded also within Italy because the celebrations were very muted because within a week or so of the victory and these enormous celebrations in Rome, um, the results of the inquiry were released and um, it just left a very bad taste in everybody's mouth. And there was a sense that, yeah, we've won the World Cup, but this, it was just such a total 
corruption of the national passion of, of Italian football. And um, it left a bad taste. And unfortunately, it, it hasn't gone away. We're almost out of time, Simon, and I, I, we do need to ask about uh, Berlusconi. And, and what I want to ask you is, uh, as, as someone who's researched Italian football, who's been living in Italy for over a decade, what would be the, you know, the one thing that we really need to know about uh, Berlusconi that might be missed by uh, uh, most media accounts of him? Good question. The one thing... Um... In terms of sport, I, I mean, I think the, the one thing that everybody should know is is that it's just his total domination of the media, and and as prime as prime minister, he's totally total dominated. As prime minister, he had control effectively over state media, as um, and he controlled an enormous amount of the private media through his TV channels, where he shows Milan, where he. He can uh, raise the pro- the value of advertising space. Uh, if you want to put an advert on when he's great, and it is a great Milan side of the sort of early mid nineteen nineties of Hullet, Rambast, and Rijkaard, you want to put an advert on during one of those matches. It goes on his channel, and you design your advert through his advertising agency. So it's this huge money making machine for him, and um, that is one. I think that's arguably one of the biggest challenges that Italy actually has is that they must they must introduce a conflict of interest a conflict of interest legislation um, and it goes beyond sport they must do that and if we can actually they can actually manage to put a government together which at the moment seems very unlikely um, they must do that because it's wrong it's quite simply wrong and he has exploited it in a frighteningly effective way which is where the source of his power comes from. There is no, there are just such limited opportunities for alternative voices through the Italian media. And it's wrong. And football has been a major part of his sort of electoral appeal, but ultimately his control of the media is is the crux of the problem. Simon, the last chapter of your book is titled Not a Normal Country. What do you mean by that? Lots of things, really, but um, but the, in, in many ways, it, it's not it's not a it could have been perhaps not a natural country. I think it's not a Italy as we where we started in many ways. It's not a natural uh, country. It's not a natural nation. Um, it's I think its obsession or the role of sport in Italy is. Um, I think it's different. It's difficult to make that because there aren't really too many comparable works of other nations. And I'd certainly uh, love other people to start writing similar types of histories of other countries. I would love to see a, a history of, of Germany written in this way. Um, then we can make comparisons and perhaps it would be proven to be, maybe I'd be shown to be wrong. But I think Italy isn't normal because I think sport does have a... Um, an above average sort of measure of importance within Italian society. But the key difference, I think, between Italy and other countries, people would say to me, well, all, all sports are politicised. And, um, you know, all, all sports get used by various agencies and whatever. Yeah, OK, they do. But I think the big difference in Italy and the big problem, the reason in many ways why this book um, is written is because I, I think the... The, the one thing that you don't hear about throughout the book 
almost completely is the state. You don't hear about, there's very, much, there's very little written about the Italian government, the state, because the state, like many other aspects of Italian life, and particularly the legal system in the early and law enforcement in the early years of the country, <coughs> the, the state doesn't take responsibility for sport. So sport is always in the hands of private bodies, private agencies, who can then direct it and politicise it. Now, if, if sporting provision from the beginning had been offered um, adequately by the state, then there would have been no vacuum for the church to come in and exploit. There would have been no vacuum for the, for the Socialist Party to exploit. There would have been no vacuum for the, uh, the Fascist Party to exploit it because the state would have been there providing that. And that's where I think that you would probably see a big difference between Italy and other countries. Um, but it's not normal for a, a variety of reasons. I think, you know, the identity is a key one, and that's the real sort of modern, the current issue, the, 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 the difficulties of, of race, the difficulties that Mario Balotelli throws up in terms of the, this identity of what it actually means to be Italian. Um, and it's a very, very. We talk about Italy as this, as this country, and everybody knows, or you know, what a great country it is, what a beautiful country it is, what product, what it can produce. Um, but then it's just so fractured, and it so doesn't know what it is, and I don't think it kind of ever really will do. It. All it knows is what it isn't, and that's what I think makes it a really uh, unusual place. It makes it a great place, but it also creates a number of many of the issues and the problems that it has to face up to. So after, after 11 years in, in Rome, uh, so I know you're a, you're a West Ham supporter. Have you adopted a team in, in Syria? Uh, yeah, of course. There's only one team in Syria. That's, that's Roma. You can't support any other side. AC Milan's run by, run by Berlusconi. Uh, <laughs> you, right. Juventus, Juventus are completely crooked. In, Inter, let's leave it. Um, I, I tried Fiorentina because I was there for a year and I saw Fiorentina a lot, but I just couldn't love them. So there's, the, there's only one team in Italy. Okay. Okay. And of course, you can't support Lazio for obvious reasons. <laughs> You've been listening to an interview with Simon Martin about his book, Sport Italia. The Italian Love Affair with Sport, published by I.B. Torres in 2011. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects like world music, science and technology, and terrorism and organized crime. If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter, or friend us on Facebook. You can give us your feedback, offer suggestions, and find links to thoughtful sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening, and enjoy your week.